0: because I was considered dangerous, um, he couldn't go after me. So I've always told the story, I was like, man, I was such a bad criminal, Doug, the bounty hunter couldn't even go after me.
1: Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of This Alabama Life. My name is Don Keefe, and uh, I am your host for this uh, video podcast, our inaugural podcast, and For that reason, we have a special guest with us here today, Brian Dawson, who is the president and CEO of 1819 News, the fellow who was bright enough to come up with this whole idea and concept. Brian, good to see you. Uh, We hope to do a couple of things today. By the way, uh, Andrea Tice is here as well, and she's going to help co-host and do a lot of the interviews on this podcast, and we'll meet uh, both these folks in a lot more depth as we go along here. We're going to introduce ourselves. We're going to talk about the purpose of this show, and we're going to also outline the, the, the types and formats of content that you can expect in the future. We hope these uh, episodes will be well worth your time, energy, and effort, and that you'll tell other people about them. Word of mouth is powerful in all areas of uh, media, and we certainly hope you'll be on our side and will help us pass along the word. As I said, I'm joined today by President and CEO Brian Dawson. Brian,
0: thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, I want to talk to you about storytelling and the power of storytelling. To me, the perfect story is when you take an average person or a seemingly average person and you put that person into an unusual situation and you allow that person to do remarkable things. And I think that's your story. It's Andrea's story. It's my story. It's everybody's story and uh, the ones we're going to be telling on this particular podcast are primarily those of people who are associated with the state of Alabama in some way. The screenwriters say it more simply. You get your hero up a tree, you throw rocks at him while he's up the tree, then you get him out of the tree, and that's the perfect story. What is the power of storytelling, and why is it going to be such an important part of what we're
0: doing here with this podcast? So Yeah, my, um, a little of my background professionally is uh, working with a gentleman by the name of Lee Habib, uh, who created a show called Our American Stories, which is actually the fastest growing terrestrial radio show in the country right now. Um, and he taught me so much about the power of storytelling and um, really, um, especially in you know the ability to to influence culture um, to whether it be persuasion or convince or anything, um, people that are more conservative tend to lean towards um, pie charts and data and graphs and statistics. And for whatever reason, we we do that, but it's not effective. And and, um, human beings are hardwired to download narrative form. We just get stories inherently. Um, It's the way we were built. It's the way we were wired. And so you look in the Bible and you see Jesus, and he explains challenging concepts through story, through uh, parables. And so this idea of storytelling uh, to transcend, um, you know, Pie charts and statistics and all those things, and really speak to the heart and soul of a human being. Um, you know, and one of the uh, the things that um, when you because of that inability of of people who are conservative to tell stories, we've we've lost that mountain, that hill, as it were, because we're not telling our stories. So, one of the quotes that Lee taught me, uh, and and I love when he says it, and he's he's written it, and I don't even remember the first time I heard it, but was. Uh, It it just, it really caught me. It's to continue to allow the left to tell the story of America to Americans without competing fiercely in media is not just gross negligence, it's cultural suicide. And so to shorten that up and really bring it home, what that means is if we continue to allow um, other people to tell our story, um, we can't expect our culture to survive that. Um, And so really, and that is, that's how we hand our heritage, our traditions, our cultures down is, is through the power of storytelling. And so um, Alabama has incredible stories, uh, incredible stories to tell, and no one's been telling them. We've, we've allowed one group to tell our stories, and, and, and so we shouldn't be surprised when we, when we see how that's turned out for us.
1: Well, that, that's one of the questions I have. We have no lack of people telling our story There's, throughout the media locally and nationally, between the Internet local radio and television and that sort of thing but most of those stories turn out negatively they're they're not highlighting the good things that are going on
0: in alabama and the country and the world yeah um you know right now we have um i guess just to call them out you know one big media outlet the media outlet of record in the state of alabama is al.com the alabama media company and um it seems like all of their content is basically just trashing alabamians for what they believe it's a constant um steady stream of You know, you no good dirty rednecks, um, you bitter clingers, bitterly clinging to your Bibles and your guns and how dare you vote for Donald Trump and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there was a column that to me really just epitomized that whole thing was a a column they came out with that talked about, um, that said that Alabama is the fourth unhappiest state. And so first of all, like, obviously your source for that was probably some silly source so why would you grab that? Like, so if you're an author and you're a writer and you're writing for AL.com and Alabama is your area, why why would you publish that? Like, why would you take that and be like, you know what? That's what I'm writing. Hey, you know the states you guys live in? You're actually the fourth unhappiest state in the country. Did you guys know that? Of course you did, because you're unhappy just like I'm unhappy. And so they hate the state they live in and they want you to hate it too. Um, and so that's why that's the the content is geared that way. And so we also think that it's imperative that we have a local focus. And one of the things when I started this this whole platform, 1819 News, that started that was between November 3rd and January 6th, I, I have historically worked in national news, national media, national fundraising. Everything was national, trying to influence national politics and public policy. And I really just, through that course of November 3rd to January 6th, became so disgusted and frustrated because there's nothing we can do about what's going on in D.C. At the same time, my pastor was preaching on uh, localism. And, you know, fathers getting their houses in order and and then homes being involved in the community and those communities and cities thriving. And when cities thrive then counties and counties, then the state. And so f- starting at that local level, and we think that that's one angle we really want to go to is it's not just the, you know, the stories of Birmingham that we're going to tell a ton of those. It's not just the stories of Mobile. We're going to go to small towns. We're going to go to localities and we're going to hear uh, those type of stories from those type of people, and so andrea you 've already been doing that, um, so we 'd love for you to tell us a little about you know what what it 's been like so far with some of the interviews that you 've done uh, and what your thoughts are
2: well, thanks, Brian. you know before I came to eighteen nineteen news, I was doing news at another uh, company, and um, you know I was behind the desk a lot, and certainly through reading the stories and r- writing different ones, you know I learned about Alabama as well as my interactions in you know, locally here in Birmingham. But the, what I appreciate about what I'm doing now is I'm getting out from behind the desk and I'm going out on the ground and I'm going to these different places and f- and just talking to people right in their arena, in their realm, in their sphere. And you get the, the unfiltered uh, version of what's going on in their life when you just talk to them right where they're at. And the thing that struck me the most it, so far, I've done probably th- uh, four or five interviews and I'm just always impressed with how productive people are. They are busy. They're doing their lives. They're doing what's right for uh, taking care of their families, taking care of their, being involved in their communities, their churches. Uh, they're 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 on the ground doing what it takes. And if that were multiplied over and over and over again, which it's already being d- done in Alabama, but uh, you know, I hopefully would love to see it multiplied beyond, you know, to all the other states for that, this, this element of Alabama life to catch on. Uh, people are very productive in their own, uh, expertise and where, where they have focused their lives. And, uh, and it's all with the goal of helping others. And so I, you know, it's a a wide range from people who are training dogs to people who are sending drill, uh, well drilling teams over to Africa. Uh, and it's just always very impressive to me, uh, what people are doing and they've got their, their heads. What is it? Their heads to the grindstone. Is that yes, the right phrase? Nose. I think it's their nose, Nose, yeah. the nose I mean, to the grindstone. They're so to
0: the grindstone that their nose is gone and now it's their head. Yeah, there you go. That, that yeah, they're just,
2: they, they, they're hunkered down. They're doing what's right. And they're not letting, I'm, sh- I'm not saying in any way that they're ignorant of what's going on in the national realm, but they're not letting it derail them. Amen. And that's what uh, I really appreciate seeing as well.
1: Well, I think that comes out in the format of most of the news that we see. I, I'm going to go to television news because that comes to mind. If you look at the the typical format, if it bleeds, it leads, just like it does in the newspaper. Right. And the first uh, 28 minutes of the national news and most of the local news is going to be who shot who and how we're all going down the tubes and the world is coming to an end and global warming is going to kill us all by the end of the next week and that sort of thing. That's right. Our format is going to be a little different from that. Ryan. what... What will be the format now that I'm the host? I'd kind of like to know what the format is. Yeah, Can you know,
0: I, uh, I just wanted to get you in here and I'm going to spring this whole thing on you. Uh-oh. So it has evolved a little bit. And so we initially uh, had thought, okay, we're going to do an audio storytelling podcast, very similar to, you know, This American Life or Our American Stories, uh, but focused on Alabama and do it a little bit different. And so if, if you listen to This American Life, um, there's a lot of narration. They tell stories. They obviously have their slant. Um, but it's really it's really entertaining and it's really good. And then Our American Stories is more allowing the person in the interview to tell their story with very, very limited narration. And so my thought was, oh, we'll do something like that that's a little bit of a hybrid. We'll do it in our style, but it'll be an audio storytelling podcast, and that'll be great. And as we really began to um, look at the way media was trending and how people wanted to get their content – um, and and throughout the whole thing, I've been talking to people about the importance of repurposing and being multimedia. Um, we thought, well, what if what if we did that? But what if we had video? And so we're really excited to, you know, not only you know show our our mugs in here in the studio, but also um, sending a uh, camera. Some of us more than others. Some so. of us more than others. Right? Andrea can hang me and me and Don. We we were made for radio. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but we we're gonna have a camera crew that follows Andrea out to the field. And we're going we're gonna to have video footage of these people doing the interview. And it'll be very similar to like an ESPN 30 for 30 style documentaries that we're doing. And, you know, we're going to be figuring this out as we go. And you guys are going to be along with us for the journey. And it's going to be really, really cool. And so um, we couldn't be more excited to, to bring that video element to people. But the beauty is, is it will be done in such a way that you can still listen to it as audio, right, if you're in your car. So I highly recommend using audio when you're driving. So don't do not do the video when you're driving. So yes. uh, Or texting. Yes. Yeah, go, <laughs> go ahead and do that. But just don't watch the video because we don't want to be responsible. There no. you go. Dawson
2: <laughs> safety tip number one. <laughs> that's you right. Some rack them up. <laughs> yeah, I've got
0: a long list of safety tips. I've actually gotten a lot safer since I started having children. So not quite to the point where I wear a helmet everywhere, but I'm getting close. <laughs> so the shows will range in uh, length from 30 minutes to an hour. Um, we'll be delivering the audio versions through iTunes, Spotify, or the other usual suspects where you can get your podcasts. Um, the video version will be on our website and then it'll also be on YouTube will be the primary uh, means of, of, of getting uh, this particular show uh, in the video form. And so Don is our host. Uh, as I've talked a little bit about in the the digital content preview uh, video we shot, um, I think Don is great. I've known Don for a while now and really appreciate uh, his storytelling ability, his writing, um, his personality. And as I said, and hopefully he doesn't get offended by this, but it's like listening to him tell stories is very similar to, you know, sitting down with your grandfather on the front porch, hearing someone tell stories. And um, we're really excited to have him here uh, doing that for us.
1: As a grandfather, I'll not be uh, offended by that at all. <laughs> well, good. Well, you know, and I, I, storytelling is what I'm all about. And people say everybody has at least one book in them. Everybody, in my opinion, has at least one story and probably a lot more. Everybody listening to this has a story. We're, we're going to try to get to all of you somewhere along the way. But uh, I, I'm actually sitting here with two people who have very interesting stories themselves. Uh, Brian, yours
0: is almost unbelievable, but it's true. It is. Tell us about it. Yeah, and sometimes I've had to you know, tamper my story down a little bit so that people will believe it. And the one thing I can say about my story is that um, God is the... You know the author and perfector of our faith, but he's also the the author of all good stories in in that sense, especially the the, the real ones, right? The the truthful stories. He's the author of, and so um, my story is it's a very interesting one, and it's um, I used to be very timid about telling the story and wonder, um, you know, but I, it, the way that God works, He's actually allowed my story to launch me into a place of success because people find it interesting, and so um, I guess without further ado, I'll just jump into it, right? Please and do. so. Starting in my childhood, um, I was um, I was always the kid that got put in the, the friend zone, so to kind of frame up what my personality was like, and so, you know, all the way back, I can remember back in eighth grade, um, eighth grade graduation, uh, inviting this girl to the eighth grade graduation dance. Uh, we went together. Afterwards, I told her how much, you know, how beautiful she was and how I felt about her, and you know, professed my undying love to her, and, and I always say she gave me the Heisman, right? She she put me in the friend zone, um, and that was kind of where I, I stayed, not only with her, but every other girl, you know, friend that was a female throughout middle school and high school, and that had a lot to do with just a, an overall lack of self-confidence and self-worth that comes from having grown up in a really broken home, and so when I was two years old, my parents got divorced. The only... I, think and and I'll I'll hear from them as they listen to this and tell me that's not true but I think that the only reason that they got married was because uh, my mom got pregnant with me and they got married and that lasted all of about two years and then they got divorced and as uh, courts usually do they put me with my mom you know in retrospect I think we would all agree that that probably wasn't the best place to put me but that's where they did and uh, my mom at that time in her life was not healthy Um, she had been through a lot of traumas um, as a child and and even as a teenager and then uh, had just been through a lot and was was not um a whole healthy person and and so the environment I grew up in was not one where uh I was getting those nutrients and so if you think about um children and their upbringing um you know um, i I always equate it to like if you're growing tomatoes like what do you need to have healthy tomatoes you need to have sunlight, you need to have nutrition, you need to have the right soil and all these other elements that allow for healthy fruit. And I think it's the same for healthy children. You have to have a certain amount of love and structure and discipline and, and all these different things. And and I lacked all of that. So I was not a, uh, a healthy tomato, if you want to call it that (laughs) by the time I was 10. And so when I was 10, I moved in with my father. Um, and at, at the time I'd been living with my mom, uh, from zero to 10, um, moved in with my father. Uh, and he lived in Wichita, Kansas at the time. And, um, immediately my life began to have more structure in it he's the guy that got up at four thirty every morning went to work made sure we had a roof over our head he showed up to the baseball games and all those things and looking back on it now I didn't understand it then and I'm so thankful for what he's done now but I wasn't thankful then is that he generationally corrected the absences that he had in his life right and so my dad didn't have a dad and so the the needs that he wanted to fill as a father when he became a father he didn't have a dad to provide for him he didn't have a dad to protect him to, you know, um, there, you know, to put a roof over his head to show up to football practice to show up to baseball practice. He didn't have a dad, and so he checked all those boxes when he became a father. Um, and but the the boxes that weren't checked were the hey, I love you, son. I'm proud of you, and you know these type of things. And and so I, and it's really cool because I've now had conversations with him, and we talk about generational correction, and 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 you know he fixed so many things that put me in the position to be able to fix some more things Then my son's probably going to be on a podcast 30 years from now, you know, talking about my screw ups and how he's fixing those things. And so, uh, it's kind of the way it goes, but, um, ultimately, you know, because of the, how hard things were for me from zero to 10, um, I had a lot of emotional scars and wounds, not to get all Freudian on you guys, but, um, it caused a lot of, you know, a lot of pain and hurt, and I didn't have that self esteem, and that's kind of why I was that friend zone guy that I talked about. And so, I was only really ever comfortable in my skin when I began to drink. I started to drink, and all of a sudden, it was like liquid. I, you know, some people call it liquid courage. I call it like liquid. I can live with myself, right? <laughs> like, yeah. hey, I'm actually comfortable in my skin. So, um, I began to drink, and I started to drink often. And I was a very creative, uh, young man. And so, I created a fake ID, and then I was the life of the party because I could get alcohol. And then I just became this alcoholic. Pot smoking, life with a party guy, and you know I really like that, and so, um, that would go on to the point where I was you know um, smoking marijuana, selling marijuana, doing cocaine. You can't pay for cocaine selling marijuana, so I started selling cocaine, and I realized I had this um, this skill set that made me I guess successful. You know at what I'm successful now, networking and sales, and so. Um, I ended up as a suburban white kid, um, who started, you know, pushing large amounts of drugs for cartels, um, and, and, and people that, a a guy with a bat, you know, where I was born and grew up, had no business really being around. Um, but that, that's where I was. And so I began to get arrested and rack up felonies and all these other things. I would bond out, catch a case, get probation, catch another case. And it was just back and forth, back and forth. Um, and that led up to the point where, um, my final, um, days before um, getting arrested for the last time. Um, I'm trying to think of how to even transition into that. So what, what what was the real humdinger that really got me, all of my stuff was drug related, but the, the thing that they wanted to bury me under the prison for was, uh, and at that time it was my sixth felony, um, was that I was involved in um, a drug uh, motorcycle automobile theft ring. And I was charged with being the, you know, kingpin or whatever you want to call it in that. And a guy had informed the cops about that. And um, I ended up getting arrested, uh, found out that he told on me because they give you paperwork that says who tells on you. It's part of the discovery process. I also became a lawyer, not really uh, in there, but <clears throat> um. so I found out that this guy told on me. And so when I got out, I went over to his house um, and um, got into an altercation with him and beat him nearly to death. And so they ended up um, charging me initially with attempted murder, though it got dropped to first degree assault, um, and that was uh, June 19th of 2000. Yeah, June 19th of 2007, um, I got arrested. And so um, there's uh, there's always so many parts in order for me to tell this story succinctly that I have to intentionally skip where it's like ah, I think it'd make more sense if I told this part of the story. But I'm I'm just powering through here, and so if if you guys hear me miss something to where the story's not making sense, feel free to interrupt.
2: I do have a question. Were you still in high school at this point, or had you had you even
0: graduated? No, it was I was 23 years old when, um, uh, and I didn't do too well in school. But by 23, I did make it out of high school. Okay, all right. No, I'm just kidding. I was (laughs) I actually dropped out of high school. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes, Um, but that was like in my senior year. So anyway, but yeah, I was 23 years old sitting in. Uh, El Paso County Criminal Justice Center, which is the county jail in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I was facing uh, 384 years in prison for attempted murder, aggravated robbery, um, assault. No, the assault was, the, it was just a slew of charges that, that were all piled up on this, and because um, I had had so many previous felonies before, it stacks and stacks and stacks, and so um, you know they were they were throwing the book at me, as it were, and so as I said, that uh, it all came to. Um, A stop on uh, June 19th of 2007 and and my friends always want me to tell this part of the story so I guess I'll tell it so I was in Colorado Springs Colorado on the run I had been on the run for about six weeks at this time I had eluded the cops they closed in on me and I would always get away and um, to by this point they were actually setting up perimeters all over the areas in Colorado Springs where I was known to hang out and so they had like literally like barricade perimeters with cop cars and they were like showing pictures of people you know, showing people my picture and they'd have like guns, like photoshopped into it, like he's dangerous, you know, and, it, it, and and maybe there was a time when I was dangerous, but it wasn't at that time. I was armed with a meth pipe and that was about it. So, um, but it was funny, you know, that, that it had gotten that serious. And I ended up being like one of the most wanted criminals in Colorado Springs at the time. And um, I don't know how true this was, but I was told by one of the arresting officers that they were doing a 72 hour, 72 fugitive sweep in Colorado Springs if you know anything about Dog the Bounty Hunter, his TV show is based in Colorado Springs, and so he spends about 60 or 70% of his time uh in Colorado Springs. He does some stuff in Hawaii and he does stuff in Grand Junction, but primarily he's uh Colorado Springs. And so um and because of his background, he's not allowed to own firearms, and so he has paintball guns and the paintballs have pepper spray in them, and so oh. he has to pick and choose the criminals that he can actually go after and because I was considered dangerous. Um, he couldn't go after me, so I've always told the story. It was like, man, I was such a bad criminal. Doug, the bounty hunter, couldn't even go after me. <laughs> right? It's got a good ring to it. But again, he has it uh, on his business card. Yes, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's right there. No, but um, anyway. So, did,
2: did this ever make it to an episode of Cops? No, that it I didn't. could go back and. I look wish
0: at? it did because I. So how it ended? So I was sitting um, on this day, June nineteenth, two thousand seven. I'm on the third story in an apartment, which is where my hideout was while I was on the run. Someone turned me in. The cops showed up. I knew they were coming. And as I always framing up, I was cooking bratwurst in this, you know, kind of a shanty of an apartment watching the Chappelle show. This was my last day out. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, cooking, cooking bratwurst, watching the Chappelle show, and I looked out the window and I saw the front edge of a cop car with the little flashlight things that they have on their mirrors. And I knew at that time it was up. And a few seconds later, I started hearing pounding on not my door, but a door that was actually down the street like down the hall a little bit okay. and it was, you know, Colorado Springs police department open up and they kicked that door in. And so I knew I had a few seconds. Right. And so I tied a rope to the bottom of this recliner previously, because this was my, my planned getaway because this was my hideout. Right. And so I took a nylon repelling rope and I tied it to the bottom of this old seventies retro recliner. And like every 18 inches, I tied a double knot. So it would be like a climbing rope and I'm up on the third story. And so the idea was that this window was why wi- or this, this chair, this retro recliner was wider than the window was. Right. And so I'm going to jump out the window and this thing's going to hold me. And so as they're coming and kicking in doors, I kick the screen out of the window. I throw my backpack out the window. I wrap the rope around my hand and I just jump out of the window. Oh, my goodness. And so I'm (laughs) hanging. Yeah, I'm hanging from this thing. Well, apparently there was like a surveillance van that was back there. And they saw me throw the backpack out and they saw me jump out. And then I looked on the other side of the apartment building on either side and like fifty or sixty cops come swarming out with pistols drawn. There's no tasers to be seen. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, where else am I gonna go? You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> And I had eluded them to the, you know, in their defense. I had gotten away quite a few times. So, um, that was it. That was the end. And so I, I unwrapped the the rope from my hand and I let go and I dropped three stories and landed and uh the cop put his knee in my back and there's two German Shepherd or police dogs barking in my face and put the cuffs on me and put me in the back of the cop car. And that was that was the end of my, my terror reign on, on Colorado Springs. And so I end up going to county jail, getting in more trouble in county jail because I now know that I'm going to have to face my consequences. I'm not going to bond out anymore. My bail's too high. And so I'm going to have to be this tough dude because I'm fixing to go to prison for the rest of my life. And so I'm in there. I'm getting in fights while I'm in jail well, I got in enough fights to where they finally threw me in the hole, which is administrative segregation, which means you're in jail in jail. And so in jail in jail, administrative segregation looks like being in a um, eight and a half, about eight foot by 12 foot concrete cell by yourself for 23 hours a day. You get one hour out. Uh, you go make a phone call. You take a shower. You go back into your cell. And I was in there for, I don't know, four or five months. Oh, and somewhere Whoa. around around the 3 or 4 month mark, I um I had this epiphany and it was this very eye-opening moment for me. It was very transitional and with the you know, with the, the exception of looking back on my life and seeing when God actually saved me, this was the other most pivotal moment. And I'm sitting in county jail and I'm I'm pacing in administrative segregation. There's not a lot to do, so pacing was really the option. You could just walk back and forth uh in your in your prison cell. And uh, I had this epiphany, this aha moment. And it seems really simple. And every time I tell people this story, it's so simple that I, they're like, uh-huh, and? But it was my fault. It was my fault. And so up to that point, it was my mom's fault. It was my dad's fault. It was the cop's fault. It was my grandma's fault. It was my grandpa's fault. It was the judge's fault. It was the DA's fault. It was the system's fault. I was a victim. Why couldn't everybody else see this? But for whatever reason my eyes were open to the fact that this is my fault. What in the world? Um, And and it was kind of funny. And again, like if if they had a camera in that room at that time, and so I've been pacing for hours, right? And my hair's all disheveled. And I'm like, it's my fault. (laughs) It's my fault. But that's what happened. And so from that moment on, I realized that I made bad choices that created bad circumstances if I create, if if I make good choices, I could create good circumstances, and it was the most liberating thing that happened to me.
1: But at that point, how much time were you facing?
0: Uh, that was when I was facing hundreds of years in
1: prison, right? And, and so, and how in the world can you have that positive outlook, potential
0: positive outlook, at that point? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. And again, um, without giving too much away on my theological background, we call that the effectual call. So I wasn't saved yet. But God was sure working on me. And so I, I, that's the only thing I can accredit it to is this, this eye-opening, mind-changing perception shift that it happened. And once you see it, it's like the matrix type of a thing. You can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And now I see that I'm responsible for creating my circumstances. I'm responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for what I do. And having that ability to take responsibility for things means that I'm actually in charge of my own destiny. And so it wasn't easy, but I began to make better decisions. And you have all these crazy thought patterns from the, you know, the culture that you live in at that time. It's a criminal, you know, convict culture of, you know, if someone does this, you have to do that. If someone says this, you have to, you know, do that. And so I had to break away from that way of thinking and begin to make decisions based off of where I wanted to go in life. And so that's what I began to do. And then I ended up getting into a mediation hearing again, by the grace of God, I end up getting into a mediation hearing, which is basically like a horse trading situation with the district attorney. So you go in there and they're like, well, and so they actually came back to me before I got into this mediation. Um, The district attorney made an offer to my public defender that said, uh, well, instead of the 300 years, if you go to trial and you're found guilty, you're going to get 300 some odd years. But if you plead guilty, we'll give you 32 years. And when you're 23, you're like, What's the difference? <laughs> right. What's the difference? Right. And so, um, I was broken, and I called my grandma, and it was just kind of a hail mary, and I was just in tears, and I told my grandma, and, and she had noticed the change in me, because my family had cut me off, cut me off, and I deserved to be cut off, right? I'd burned every bridge, I'd, you know, uh, I, I didn't had not no trust with my family, but my grandma was actually the first one to really notice um, that there was a significant change in my thinking and behavior and she could just sense it as you know she'd been there my whole life she knew something was different about me and she said look brian i can tell something's changed in you we're going to try and figure out a way and she was able to actually get secure an attorney for me and again it would take me 30 minutes to explain the miracles that happened there for this to happen but ultimately he got me into a mediation hearing got in the mediation hearing they started with 32 years with the crime of violence sentence enhancer um my um me and my lawyer were like, well, I think I should get eight years. And that's where the horse trading kind of begins. Well, we think 20 years. Uh, and so it was really kind of cool how this happened. It was on Martin Luther King day. Uh, I think it was some a ho- Monday holiday. I'm pretty sure it was Martin Luther King day. And so the district attorney had not been able to line up counters with my attorney. And so she was there on her holiday, like in her pajamas and she didn't want to be there. And it's like, well, I got nowhere to go. So all the time I got in the all world. the time in the world, about 300 <laughs> years if I do it wrong. And so, um, I played that well, and they finally came back to me with a 15-year sentence with a crime of violence. And my big thing was, you know, I don't want that crime of violence because that's the way that it works in Colorado. That that sentence enhancer means you're going to do a larger percentage of your time. You're not going to be eligible for a lot of the vocational programs that they have in there and rehabilitation programs. And it's just a stigma that, that you don't want if you're trying to change your life. Like, if you're just a prisoner and you're like, oh, that guy's a violent criminal, it d- doesn't matter. But if you're trying to change, which I was, I was really, I didn't want that. And so... I um uh, I said, look, I don't want to end up in Lyman, which is the you know, one of the bad prisons in Colorado. I don't want to end up in Lyman with swastika's all over my face. I wanna change my life. And so if you if I'll give you a year if you drop the crime of violence, and they ended up getting giving me a sixteen year sentence to the Colorado Department of Corrections with the crime of violence dropped. And so I got back to my cell and I realized that God had moved in my life and I knew that was real and I was probably the happiest person ever to be sentenced to sixteen years. <laughs> 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 Woohoo, sixteen years. Um, and so <clears throat> I ended up getting shipped off to uh prison. I went to the Denver reception diagnostic center. You go there, that's where it became really real to me that I was in prison. They have the gun towers, the roll upon roll of razor wire and you pull up there and it's like, okay, this is real. And then they see if you're a gang member or all this other stuff. And then they shoot you to your actual facility, which was the where County correctional center, which is in Walsenburg, Colorado was the first place that I ended up. And, uh, I get to my unit and this big guy with the Semper Fi tattoo on uh, on his arm, um, big burly guy comes walking up and he says, "My name's Charles and I'm a Christian." And I shook his hand and I'm and I'm looking around and I'm like, "Well, this big fellow obviously knows his way around the joint." Uh, I said, "Charles, we we can hang out, but you can leave that Jesus stuff at the door. I don't want to hear it." And uh, and he just became my friend. And so as he he never tried to browbeat me with the gospel, he began to tell me about Jesus as conversation allowed. And he became my friend and he provided for me. And so when you get in there, you have your, um, basically your jumpsuit. They wear greens in, in Colorado. So I had my green jumpsuit, you know, like two pairs of underwear, uh, a cup and a spoon. Like that's what you got when you get in there, right? And he gave me soups. He gave me coffee. He gave me sweats. And he provided for those those kind of physical needs. And then as developed a friendship with me and his conversation allowed. And we had lots of conversations he would tell me about it. And, you know, sadly he ended up getting moved to another prison. Um, the, the prison I was in in Walsenburg actually shut down. Um, and uh, I ended up bouncing around to a couple other prisons and I ended up in Sterling Correctional Facility um, a number of years later, uh, probably about well, actually probably two years later. And I get out there and the first person I see on the yard is Charles. And wow. there he is again. And so we, we, our friendship kicked up again. He was coaching a softball team and I played on a softball team and met some other guys. And he eventually comes up to me and says, hey, you know, um, you've got parole coming up soon. You know, you should, uh, you should try and get some certificates. You should take some classes. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Well, he's the chaplain's assistant, and he got me into these, you know, Christian fellowship type, you know, classes. And I got in there, and I'm like, I hate you, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he uh, bamboozled me into these Christian programs. And, but one of the things, one of the decisions I made up to that point was that the, the last thing that I was going to quit was quitting. I quit quitting, and that was the last thing I would quit, right? And so, I started, and I'm like, I'm I'm gonna see this out because I'm not quitting anything anymore. And so, I'm in there, and the first program was kind of come as you are, you know, it, it was whatever. But I did experience fellowship for the first time, and there was other Christians like Charles, which were these real Christians who actually read, read their Bibles, and they were very uh, thorough. And uh, it was just, it was good. Um, and sorry, we just had uh, one of our friend Scott Butram from the Trustville Tribune just came in and waved at me, and I wasn't expecting to see him, so. Anyway, so yeah, no, I met these other, these other guys that were strong Christians like Charles, and I really liked it. And so when that program ended, I asked Charles, I'm like, hey, uh, can you get me into another one of them there, Christian programs? I don't like the Jesus stuff. It's just the, the guys. The, you need you the know. certificate. Yeah, right? exactly, it was, exactly. The certificate. Need that real bad. And so I ended up getting into that, and it was actually the Truth Project by Dr. Del Tackett. And so if you know anything about that program, it is a Christian worldview apologetics course, and it is this is how it is, and this is what the Bible says. And I didn't like that. Um, and so I would get into arguments with people at the end of, um, pretty much at the end of every course, it would be an hour teaching and then an hour of, um, conversation. And I would argue with them, you know, if you believe this Jesus character was actually the son of God, that he was born of a virgin, you know, that if you believe all that stuff and that was the problem, I had a problem with those points, right? I could believe that this Jewish guy got killed for what he believed a couple thousand years ago and created a movement. I could buy that. but It was these other things, right? And so... You know, I told them they were all stupid if you believe this, you know, you guys are all idiots. And um, you know, and again, just because these people were Christians didn't mean they weren't still prisoners, right? And so it got pretty heated. So about after the third or fourth week, I ended up walking back to my unit with Charles, and he just looks at me and he says, You know, Brian, why don't you why don't you give him a chance? And so, you know, I've been asked that question before, but again, something changed. And and for whatever reason, I said, Okay. And to give you a little history. I had some experience, very, very limited experience with church when I was um, growing up. And so uh, for about a period of a year, we went to Rhine River Baptist Church in Germany. When I lived in Germany, my mom was in the military. And I knew that these people had something different and that they lived a different life. And it made an effect on me. So I always prayed to God and I knew that God was real. I just didn't understand how Jesus factored into it. right? And so I went back to my cell that night. And i and, and from that time in Germany, when I was nine or 10 years old, flash forward to that day, I always prayed through my drug addiction, through everything I was doing. I always prayed, prayed to God again. It was more like, God, get me out of this. Mm-hmm. God, I need some help. Right? Like that was more what the prayer was, but I prayed. And so I went to my cell that night and I prayed and, uh, I said, look, God, I was scoffing as I said it. I'm like, if I need to believe that this Jesus character was your son, that he was born of a virgin. Uh, that he lived a perfect life, that he was sinless, right, as as, as they told me, um, that he died and somehow his death did something for me, and that he rose from the dead, right, again, scoffing as I'm praying this, if I need to believe that for me to be okay with you, you're going to have to show me something because that's crazy, and so I went to bed that night, and I had this <clears throat> um, this awful nightmare where I was like falling from a cliff, and I you know, flew up out of my bed with sweat pouring down my face and looked and, and I and I and I looked up and the only thing I could see in my cell was we have those digital clocks, the old digital red clocks, if you remember those, and it said three sixteen. Mm. And the only Bible verse I'd ever known in my entire life was John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so that answered my question. I asked the question and that was the answer. But of course, like, you know, any person in that situation, I tried to go back to sleep and pretend like it wasn't. And it seemed like it was 316 for like the next 30 minutes. (laughs) And so it was 316 on a Sunday morning, no less. 316 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And so I'm like, all right, I'll go to church, God. And so I I got up and I ended up going to church. And um, I walked out there and I had this, this idea in my head about Christians being weak. I don't know, it was this idea that I had about Christians. And I had my friend... Um, that I played softball with, it was on Charles's team. A guy by the name of Ramon, and he was a really big black guy, and um, he was used to be part of the blood blood gang, and you know he was a bad dude, you know. And he and God saved him, and so there was nothing soft about that guy. And so I waited outside of his unit for him, and when he came out, and he's like, "Man, what are you doing?" I'm like and he just he already knew, you know, something was going on. And so we went to church together, and they call it Christian services in there. Um, and so we went to Christian services together. And we sat in the very back, as far off to the left as you could possibly get, the last two seats at the very, very back. And um, Chaplain Davis gave the message, and he, um, he, um, I don't remember a word that he preached, but he, at the end he said, I'm doing an invitation. And I looked at Ramon, and I said, uh, what's an invitation? And he didn't go, oh, that's where you invite Jesus into your heart. He actually said, if you've got something hindering your relationship with God, you can go down there and pray with that man about it. And he stepped aside because he knew God was already working on me
2: that's was, a great answer
0: yeah I mean great amazing answer. right and so I end up going down to the the front Chaplain Davis and again just to kind of tee him up what he's like he is a total prison chaplain like he's an old farmer he's got you know calloused hands you know he's a man's man and like he doesn't do hugs <laughs> you know um and I just love him to death and so he grabs my hand and says all right uh Mr. Dawson how can I pray for you I said um well, uh, I'm not up here making any decisions, but I I need you to pray that God would soften my heart so the truth can come in because I'm angry and I know that something's going on and I just need him to soften my heart so the truth can come in. And he prayed that and when we got done praying, um, I looked up in his face and uh, tears were just pouring down his face. Again, this is a, a hard man in front of a bunch of inmates and he's just tears running down his face, just pouring down his face and I'm like, Something has happened here, and I felt, I could sense that there's just something real going on, and that was it, and and so I left there, and Charles is like, you need a Bible, so Charles gave me a Bible, and he said, start reading the story of Joseph, and so I started reading in Genesis, wherever the story of Joseph is, I should probably know, but I don't, it's in Genesis, I think, and I started reading, and I never stopped, and I just kept reading, kept reading, kept reading, and so that went on for about nine months, and one of the cool things, I'll try and do this quickly, but Charles had been denied parole, and he was like an upstanding inmate mm-hmm. right and there's no reason he should have been denied and he got denied twice and he was just like every time he's like why God why God and he actually got to watch me watch God save me and if I don't know how much evangelism either you guys do but typically you don't get to see it usually you get to plant the seed right. and then someone else gets to harvest it and he talks about that in the Bible but um and he so, connected
2: he connected that afterwards yeah. oh yeah and,
0: and he, he, knew. He, he knew like as soon as it happened he goes this is why God had me here and guess right. what like a month later he got sent home wow um, yep wow. so Um, so he was the, the chaplain's assistant when he left, I actually filled the role of the chaplain's assistant. I became the chaplain's assistant and, um, you know, I think about nine months had gone by and all my friends had pen pals that they were writing and I'm like, man, I wish I had a pen pal. And so I got on the phone with my mom who was running a Facebook page for me. My mom was a trooper too, through the whole prison thing, man. She was there for me. You know, she was always there. She came to visit. I mean, she was steady trooper. So I called my mom, and she's running a Facebook page for me. I'm not sure how legal that is, but that (laughs) happened, Uh, or may may or may not have happened. Um, But uh, and so I had her, you know, sending friend requests from these girls that I knew, you know, hey, you know, you want to write Brian? You know, he's in prison, and for this weird reason, no one responded. Can you guys believe that? (laughs) Imagine that. No lineup. No lineup. Wow. So with all that rejection, I abandoned my post on going that route, and I said, Look, God, if you want me to have you know, if you want me to have a pen pal, you're going to have to do it. So I let go. Two or three weeks goes by. I just called my mom just to call my mom. and She said, hey, do you know a girl named uh, Christina Ewan? I said, uh, yeah. I mean, that was the girl I was head over heels in love with that I went to eighth grade graduation dance that put me in the friend zone for the first time. But yeah, I, I, I know her. Why? She says, well, she wants to write you. I'm like, well, she knows I'm in prison, right? Said, yeah, she knows you're in prison. I'm like, I'm Okay, well, wow, you know, and so I ended up writing her and I wrote her a letter. And the the first letter that I wrote her, you know, was basically saying, look, I belong here. I didn't get drunk and run someone's dog over. I did this right. And I actually deserve to be in here longer than I am and just wanted her to know that, you know, and she wrote me back and she had gotten divorced and, and been through some stuff and she actually got saved like two months after I did. Oh, wow. And so our letters really just began to be about me talking about what Chaplain Davis was preaching on. And she was telling me about what her pastor was preaching on. And we really just began to build this foundation of our relationship on the Bible and God's word and, you know, what we were learning about. And so we started actually like reading the same books and we just really picked up this written correspondence relationship and what a neat way to develop a relationship with a person or really reconnect with someone. And so this has gone on for several months and I'm like, man, I cannot help but feel like something, there's a spark here that was not there when we were kids. But talk about a strange, like I've been I've been given the Heisman for a good chunk of my life by this woman, Right. And I'm in prison, so it's not like my stock is high, you know. And so I I build up the courage to, you know, write her a letter and say, look, I can't I can't help but feel like something is happening here between us. Seems like there's a spark that wasn't there before. Um, And I just want to let you know how I feel and, you know, see if you feel the same way. And again, I always, when I tell this story, I didn't like shoot her a text message. You know what I mean? I didn't, you know, send her an email, I hand wrote a letter and I put it in there and, drop it in the mailbox and it takes like three or four days to get there. And she writes, you know, and so I'm sitting there waiting, you know, waiting, twiddling my thumbs for like two weeks. She says, well, I blew that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After three days, I'm already like, dang it. You know? mm-hmm. um, and then ultimately um, I did. Um, she sent the letter and I remember them calling my name Dawson, you know, in mail call and me getting the, the envelope and pulling the letter out and reading it kind of, you know, and looked at it and she said, look, I, I feel exactly the same way. I know God wants me to be with you, and at this time, I had ten years left on my set. And she goes, "Whether you get out, you know, tomorrow or in ten years, I'm. Spo- I, I know God wants me wow. to be with you." And I was floored. Um, and I mean, that was it. And so, um, she actually flew. Uh, and this will give away some of the story, but she flew. She lived in another state in the southeast region. I'm trying not to give it away. Um, and she she flew to Denver. Stayed with my mom and they didn't even know each other. Stayed with my mom and she would take my mom's car to come see me and she would see me for a weekend and she did this a couple of different times. And um, man, I mean it was just incredible. And um my first time being able to put in for a halfway house, there's no way I was gonna get accepted with, you know, the severity of my crime and all these other things. But I put in for a program called the peer One program, which is the most intense behavior modification program of its kind in, in the country. And I put in for that, and I knew it was going to be challenging. And because of that, they actually accepted me. And my, you know, I, I put in my paperwork, and I'm like, you know, there's no way. And so she ends up coming. You know, my case manager knocks on my door, comes in my cell, and I said, well, you, you know, you got accepted. And I'm like, say what? And so I ended up getting accepted, and I, I go to this program. And for the first six months, I'm not allowed to write anyone. So I can't write Christina, but she can write me. And, you know, before she left, or excuse me, before I left, she said, how often do you want me to write you? Because we knew that this would be the case. Right. And at the time, and again, she should be the one telling her story because she's way more amazing than me and her side of the story is way more amazing than mine. Put her on the list
1: quick. Okay. Yes,
0: she's, yes, absolutely. Um, she, at the time, so she was a single mother who was working full time at Baptist East, going to school at Troy, a full time student, and her mother was dying of cancer in Brunswick, Georgia, or in the Brunswick area in Georgia. And so she would work and go to school Monday through Friday. She would pick up her son. Um, She had a son from the previous marriage, and she would pick up her son on Friday. They would drive to Brunswick, Georgia, which was six hours. She would take care of her dying mother, and she would get in the car, and she would drive back, and she would do it all over again. Unbelievable. And she wrote me a letter once a week for 26 weeks while she was doing that. Um, Absolutely incredible, the faithfulness. And so um, I got to the point in the Pier 1 program when I was allowed to... um, go out for visits. and there, there, We could do a whole episode on the Pier 1 program. It was crazy, but I'll leave all that out for another time. And so, But I got to the point where I could go out for visits, and we got married the very first time. She came up there, we got married, um, and we eloped, I guess you would say, and um, finished the program, graduated with honors, and, and transferred my uh, parole down to Alabama and finished out my term of parole in Alabama, and that was in, like, 2015 I finished my parole. So that is... Um, not the end of that story nor the the the, the whole thing and so uh, but that that's the gist of it i guess and one of the cool things that i always forget to tell when i tell the story is my mom got saved i don't know i guess it's been 3 or 4 years ago now and she actually lives with us uh, you know she it sounds like hey, my mom lives in my basement it's not like that we actually it's a really nice like apartment basement thing and, and she loves it and so she gets to be me out of the kids and it's like she's gotten this whole second chance on life too oh, that's great. i mean it's unbelievable it's incredible and then um, I got to be the best man in Charles's wedding. Charles has actually come down to Alabama and stayed with me, you know, and it's just—it's crazy.
2: Where is Charles now?
0: Charles is in Colorado. He's actually a pastor, um, and he's on staff at a Cherry Hills Community Church in uh, in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. And all this was coincidence and happenstance, and- absolutely. <laughs> and then I guess to take it from there to here, um, really, really briefly. So when I transferred my parole. Um, I, I was working uh, in a sales job. I met some people at my church that said, hey, you would do great at this job, and that job was at a place called USA Radio Networks, and he had just gotten a job there. And he said, I don't have the ability to, to, to really train you. I can give you some real rough things, but at the time I didn't know the difference between a radio station and a radio network, and it's like, it's sink or swim, man. And I'm like, well, I need the job, and I'm able to work from home, and I don't have a job lined up in, in, in Alabama. So I took the job, and, and you know it was sink or swim, and I swam, and I did really, really well. Um, made a name for myself at USA Radio Networks with their news product, and I won't go into all the details there. And then a, the guy by the name of Lee Habib that I talked about earlier heard about my success and said, I want you to come help me with, uh, with Our American Stories. And I helped Our American Stories grow from uh, 80 stations to 330, and we negotiated a deal with Premier and iHeart, which is the largest content-owning distribution production company in the world um and so that was kind of like a slam dunk and and that was about the very same time around november of last year to january of this year where i really began to feel like what can i how can i use my gifts and talents to make a difference here locally um and the opportunity to create 1819 news sprung up and about i guess january february of this year it was an idea and here we are at not even the end of the year and and we're doing it so Wow! Simply wow,
1: Andrea Tice. I hate to put you on the spot. I want you to top that story now. Tell us <laughs> oh, about you. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, uh, we'll have to do a whole other podcast, won't we? If, yes. Uh, no, I, I'm going to just give you some brief, um, just a, a brief skeletal outline here of, of just the things that have brought me to this point. I'll start off with my childhood. I, I, I was uh, born in. I was born into a family of uh, a pastors family my my dad was a pastor and my my mom and dad at some point decided to become missionaries after they had were at a church in West Virginia uh by the way let me it's a little background both my parents are from West Virginia and as the saying goes I already gave that saying to you Don that's where the men are men and the women are too <laughs> okay uh, all right so anyways uh my my parents ended up joining uh becoming missionaries and so probably during all that training and everything, I traveled a lot uh, as, as a child. We would move quite a bit, just about every two years uh, up until high school. And for a while there, there were a couple of years where I was overseas in Paraguay, South America, Belize, Mexico, and um, other parts of the United States, Canada, Texas, areas like that. Um, so some of that was was very helpful in shaping me because, well, when you're outside of the United States, you, you, be, you quickly learn... Just how incredibly blessed we are. If you have any eyes on your head, in your head, on your sh- head on your shoulder, then you realize that we we have been blessed, incredibly blessed. This other countries don't have a tenth of, of what we have, and even as a child, I was able to see that. So that was the the benefit of of that. When we got back to the states, I went on to college, went up to. Um, uh, well, let me back up just a little bit. In that process as a child, um, I came to faith in Christ and it was early on and, uh, you know, no big uh, fireworks or anything to that, but I just grew in into that faith and, you know, in and out, in and out as you get older. Uh, then I went to um, uh, a camp up north in in upstate New York. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Word of Life. Uh, Jack Wertzen, uh created that and I just happened to hear my dad talking about it. Well, that's one of those things where it just kind of hooks into your brain and you remember it. He was talking about a camp up there. I was like, hey, you know what? I'll try it. I, it was in between my senior year in high school and, and going to a community college in um, Sanford, Florida, which is where we were at the time. Uh, so I went up to camp and, and uh, had a great experience. It was really, a, they they were very strong into chall- being evangelical and, you know, evangelistic and, um preaching the gospel, but also challenging those who are Christians to, you know, start early in your life and, you know, commit it to the Lord and to his ways. And so, of course, I I, I felt that uh, call upon my life and did that. And they also had a Bible Institute up there. So uh, I was like, all right, I think I'll I'll come back. I'll consider coming back up, up to New York State after I complete community college. So that's what I did. I happened to meet my husband, at that time uh... and uh... that progressed into marriage a couple years later and then we entered into ministry and we've been up in the northeast in the pennsylvania new york area uh... but at some point god called us to alabama well at twenty three in twenty thirteen my husband had tried um... he was, he was trying to do uh, a, a, a business slash ministry uh, so he had stepped out of children's ministry where he was and that didn't take off like we thought, so we were kind of loosey-goosey, you know, we're like, God, wherever you want us, you know, preferably down south, out of these winters, but we'll we'll go anywhere. Uh, there was one point where someone had uh, put out kind of a feeler for him, and they were from Connecticut, and that really tested my, <laughs> because it wasn't just that we were going to stay up north, but we were going to go to Connecticut, Um that was going to be challenging to me in my political realm. <laughs> I just, I just knew it right then. But it, it turned out that God uh, wanted us to come south, and He sent us down to Alabama, and that's where we have been. Also, a little bit of a, a caveat: um, somewhere in there, I had, I had not completed college when I got married. I had kind of done the community college, but not the full four years. And then I went back to school when my kids were older. I didn't, I did it because I didn't want my daughters to not have a college degree so I figured I better set the example I went back to school when they were in school themselves and then I got my broadcast communications degree so when we came down here in 2013 uh it just God just opened up doors for me to start on the radio and to start doing news and um, that's what I've been doing ever since so now here I am on 1819 news and I'm excited to be here
0: awesome
1: My story is not nearly as compelling as either one of yours. Although it starts in 1600 uh, in uh, (laughs) Loch Lomond, Scotland, when Cornelius Keith was given uh, a castle and 10,000 acres because he was on the right side of the king, and then here comes King Charles, and they don't get along, so he has it all taken away. He ends up coming to the New World and moved to Virginia and then down to South Carolina, his son actually uh, settled in Pumpkintown, South Carolina. He talked with the Cherokee chief there and said, tell you what, I'll trade you two ponies for 10,000 acres of land. And the Cherokee chief said, absolutely, done deal. And both sides thought they got a good deal out of that. Uh, he, he lived there for quite a few years. Then uh, my ancestors moved down to Alabama because they were giving away land in Alabama in those days. You'd come down and get you 40 acres or 80 acres or hundred and So no
2: need for, punk, uh, for ponies.
1: No, nope, no need for ponies at all. So that was a good deal. Um, my dad was the first television repairman in our, his entire part of the state out in St. Clair County. And that meant we had a TV in our house before anybody else in town, so people would come from all over the place to watch our television. Uh, But that got me interested in media, and for some reason all along I kind of wanted to do something with radio or television. I would take a Morton salt box and cut the bottom out of it and use the little pull-up spout as the uh, focus, and that was my movie camera and my TV camera, or I would put it on the end of a broomstick and that was the microphone. (laughs) And since Dad was always working on record players and all that sort of thing, I would take two old record players and I would be a disc jockey. I always kind of dreamed of doing that. I didn't think I could make a living at it, so I went to the University of Alabama with the intent of becoming a lawyer or a teacher or something else and uh, ended up in broadcast and film communication because I was working my way through college and television and radio. I worked uh, eventually in Birmingham for WVOK, the Mighty 690, which people around these parts will remember if you're over 50 years old. I put their FM on the air in 1976, K99, 99.5 FM. I did uh, Top 40 radio. I did hippie radio. I got to go to Nashville and did country radio in Nashville on Music Row for quite a few years. I was a broadcast journalist. And all along the way, I wanted to continue to tell stories. And that's where that Scottish background, Loch Lomond, Scotland, that area, where that comes in because the Scottish have a... A tradition of being storytellers. You you go to Edinburgh and you can feel it with Robert Burns and all those guys. It's a very literary area. And that the power of storytelling, being able to tell positive, uplifting stories that affect people emotionally. I love doing that on the radio. That that's what I tried to do was affect people emotionally. If it's raining and it's dreary and you gotta go to work on a Monday morning, I would try to do something or say something or put together some records some songs that would kind of cheer people up. And uh, got to do that for quite a few years. But I uh, worked for a software company. It was based here in Birmingham. Did software for the media after broadcasting. And they put me on the road with a big old laptop computer in hotel rooms at night. You can either go down to the bar and get drunk or you can watch bad television. I unhinged that computer and started writing that novel that I'd wanted to write for all those years. Then I wrote the next novel and the next novel and the next novel, and nobody wanted to pay me money to publish them. But I finally, my agent called me one day and said, this last thing, I think I can sell it. That was in 1995. He called me back the next day and said, we got a deal. Uh, St. Martin's Mm -hmm. Press wants to publish your novel. Okay. And that was 36 books ago. I've now published 37 books. I write a lot about uh, World War II history because there are so many remarkable stories there. I write about sports because sports is sort of a microcosm of real life. People who work hard, do the right thing, and succeed do well. Those who don't, those careers often are, are cut short. But uh, I've done several biographies: a couple of people locally here in Birmingham, a very renowned artist named Steve Skipper, an early disc jockey named uh, Shelley the Playboy, Shelley Stewart, who had a big part in the civil rights movement here in Birmingham, and became one of the most successful businessmen in the world, even though he couldn't let people know he was the president of the company because he was black. Hmm. But throughout the years, he eventually became got up front, obviously, and did, did some remarkable things. Anyway, those are the kind of stories I like to tell.
2: I'm just curious, when you did your very first novel, when you were writing it on the computer, what was it about? What was the, the t- genre? Uh,
1: it was Southern Gothic. And by the way, that novel has never been published. It Southern
2: was the, Gothic,
1: Southern Gothic, about uh, it was built around the Op Snake Rodeo, and uh, a little murder mystery that goes along with that. I still think it may have some possibilities someday. You may,
2: you may need to revisit it.
1: Yeah, okay. I got it, well. The third novel I wrote became the second that was published. Okay. And I just didn't have sense enough to give up when I kept getting those rejections. But uh, I, I've had the pleasure of working in movie Some one of my uh, submarine thrillers. I write a lot about. Uh, in fact, a former nuclear submarine captain and I have written, we're working on our eighth book in the Hunter Killer series, which are techno-thriller submarine novels. Uh, one of those became a major motion picture called Hunter Killer with Gerard Butler and Gary Oldman. Actually had three Academy Award winners in that movie. But uh, And I've done a documentary on Steve Skipper as well, which... Uh, Colors of Character was in theaters last year. when No human beings were in theaters, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we're still going to get that back out there and get it in front of people because you talk about a powerful message. Steve's story is extremely powerful, as hopefully we'll find out here on this program, or this podcast, before too much longer.
0: Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say today? Yeah, My wife wouldn't forgive me if I didn't tell you guys that we have six beautiful children now. And uh, and
2: when I've seen yes. your youngest, and yeah. she's a cherub. Yes. yes. She's so, adorable.
0: How I forgot to mention that, I don't know. I, I remembered to say the part about my mom and Charles, and then forgot. Well, I had a question I meant to ask, too. Okay. Why
1: 1819 News, for those who didn't have civics in
0: Alabama? Yeah, so 1819 News was the, uh, the year that Alabama became the 22nd state. and So it's really important for us um, to go back... Uh, to go back and to look back, to learn from. And so there's hard things that we did wrong, bad things that we did, you know, that we can learn from. But there's also heroism and uh, courage that we can emulate. And so we know in America and we know in in, in the South and we know um, in Alabama that we're not descended from fearful men. There's no way you can settle country uh, this, you know, crazy with the, the wildlife and the trees and all these other things. You can't settle... Um, terrain like this if you're uh, fearful and, and soft and so we're not des- descended from fearful men and so we want to uh, as we always say be standing on the shoulders of giants as we push into the future yeah i remember my grandfather we called him a dirt farmer but he actually raised more rocks and
1: <laughs> weeds than he did anything else it was a tough life but they stood in there and made the state what it is today that's right it's a good reminder
2: that's very right. good reminder.
1: absolutely well We've come to the end of this first podcast. We appreciate very much uh, you uh, listening or watching, whichever the case may be. And we really do look forward to sharing more stories of people from Alabama with This Alabama Life. Uh, You can uh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe on YouTube to actually watch if you... Of these beautiful faces you're seeing, to actually watch the video version of the program. And you can follow along on the website for 1819. It's 1819news.com. Very simple. Uh, and be sure to sign up today for a daily newsletter that uh, you can stay up to date on some of the most important news from across the state of Alabama and around the country. Thanks for watching This Alabama Life.